city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. In September of 2019, the FBI released its 2018 violent crime statistics. Now, there was some good news. For the second year in a row, the number of violent crimes in the U.S. decreased by almost 4%. Unfortunately, though, there's still plenty of hurt to go around. Last year, there were an estimated 1,206,836 violent crimes. Almost 16 out of every 10,000 people were at some point arrested for one. Now, while these statistics are important, as a forensic psychologist, I'm much more interested in preventing these crimes from occurring. But how do we do that? I mean, how do we know if a threat is real? How can we identify risk factors that can clue us in to pending violence, whether it's in the workplace, an emergency room, a psychiatric hospital, or even in a home before it's too late? Well, lucky for us, our guest today is going to help us answer some of those questions as we talk about interviewing for violence risk. Welcome to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show. I am delighted to introduce and welcome Dr. Kelly Watt, whose expertise is in clinical, community, and forensic psychology with a special focus on violence risk assessment and victim safety planning. She currently works as a threat assessment specialist at Protect International Risk and Safety Services and is a member of the Mental Health Law and Policy Institute at Simon Fraser University. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Joni. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we are ex- very excited about it. Uh, I'm sure growing up that your number one dream was to become a violence risk assessor. <laughs> I mean, I know you and I have a lot in common in terms of what we do, and I certainly didn't even know what that was growing up. So I'm really curious as to how you got involved in this. I think it actually was like quite the opposite. So I was um, a really quiet and shy child, and the thing I probably feared the most was somebody breaking into my home and say stealing Christmas presents under my tree. I guarded the Christmas tree for an entire um, season one year. <laughs> um, so I actually started to get interested in sort of the area of violence when I was working as a bail supervisor with youth on bail. So I was 20 years old and they were all um, sort of between the ages of 14 and 18. And they were kids that had committed crimes and were released into the community on bail because they thought it was something they could manage in the community. And I, I was my absolute favorite job. I absolutely loved working with these youth. I loved working with them in their communities and their homes. There'd been some close calls on the job related to violence risk um, that were avoided for me and my colleagues as well, given the nature of our work. But when I started to move on to these more traditional sectors like forensic hospitals or correctional institutions, I started to think about my youth and I started to think about those kids and how some of them were going to do a lot better and maybe desist in crime and violence, but some of them were going to do a lot worse. And so then my passion also then became the prevention of violence, similar to yours. So it's really um, probably consistent with my fear is how can we actually stop these things from happening? And that's where my passion came from. And I think that's pretty common. It's almost like like opposite sides of the same coin, 
where there yeah. was a lot of fear about violence or a lot of interest in violence, concern about violence. And then that led to, I guess, trying to yeah. predict it and try to control it to some extent. Yeah. And my sort of interest is in the prevention of it as opposed to the prediction of it. And I think it's because, again, having worked with youth as real like human beings in context of families and communities that were no different than say yours or your friends, I just realized that violence was actually normal human behavior. And so if it's normal, then it's understandable. And just like any other, any other behavior, we can, we can prevent it then. And you know, Kelly, when you were talking about looking at some of the youth that you worked with and there were some close calls, like what would be an example of a close call that you had? Oh my goodness. In any sort of um, shift, I would do five home visits. And so usually it wasn't the youth that was concerning, but it was the, the community or the context that was unknown in terms of what you were entering into and the time of day you're entering into it. So there was one time where I think it was late afternoon and I was on a country road. It was um, in a rural area. And I was on the telephone doing my bail calls like at 7 p.m. just to make sure that people were in their houses at the right times. Um, and I was in a, an SUV and I was just on the phone. It was these old, old phones, those massive ones that um, used to exist before everyone had cell phones. And so I was just paying attention to the, the number I was calling, the person I was speaking to and filling in my sheet. And I guess I just looked up and I looked in my rear mirror and I, was, I, I had really no reason to do that. I would have been the only person in this country road in terms of a vehicle for miles. There's no vehicles passing me and there's nobody parking here. And I saw um, sort of two youth walking towards the car. And they're about, I guess, maybe 15 meters behind the car then. And I was watching them walking towards me. And I didn't know them. And so then they started to jog towards the car. And then I realized I need to actually <laughs> turn on the car and start driving. And I started driving the car um, as, in, as, in as a controlled way as I could so I didn't skid on the gravel road. Um, and they started to chase after the car. And then at that time, I, I drove faster and I just drove away. And so I had no idea, again, who they were or what they were planning to do. But I guess it ties into the interviewing side of things. But just following your instincts, trusting your gut is very important. So even though you want to make sure you have evidence to support those things, make sure you're paying attention to your surroundings, you're aware of the risks, and then, you're, and then if, you're, if anything's making you worried, you respond accordingly to that. You know, I think that's a couple of really important points here. I mean, one is, you know, you and I do violence risk assessments as a profession, but we all do violence risk assessments every day. We have to do that. I mean, we go on our first date and we have to evaluate not just before we agree to that date, but during the date. We yeah. look at that person's behavior, look at their body language, we try to get a sense of their history and that kind of thing. So I think it is important to realize that we all have to pay attention to those warning signals. Tell me a little bit about working in this psychiatric hospital. What kind of situations would you be called in to evaluate violence risk? When I was at the Ashford Hospital in um, England, I was specifically on something called the Personality Disorder Unit or section of that hospital. So unlike Canada, and I think the United States, unlike the United States as well, in England, they actually have hospitals for people with personality disorders um, who, again, have often engaged in violence or crime. So I specialized in work, working with people with personality disorders. So for the things that people might've heard about were like antisocial personality disorder, or I would call it psychopathy. I worked with a lot of individuals with psychopathy on, in when I was there. 
And then narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, those types of things are buzzwords people might have heard related to personality disorders. And there I was doing comprehensive risk assessments. So what would I say to you? I, I'm a nurse, for example. I'm a, maybe a general medical doctor or whatever, and I have a concern for whatever reason about this particular patient. I'm going to come to you as a psychologist, and I'm going to say, okay, Kelly, this is patient X who's in this room. I want you to do a violence risk assessment. A couple of things. One, what would be that person's concern most often in terms of, of bringing this person to you? Is this a concern that they're going to hurt other people in the hospital? Is this a concern that they're going to have when they get released from the hospital? What kind of setting are you talking about here, a situation? Okay, so in the forensic hospitals, usually people are there for a very long time. And so usually when you're doing the violence risk assessment, it could be at multiple points. It could be because they're just coming in and you need to figure out what the risk is now to to this, the staff and the visitors. You need to figure this out right away because usually they're coming in because they've engaged in violence and now they're here um, and we need to figure this out. But otherwise, it would be routine assessments every year, again, to think about what the risk is on the unit and then also to visitors and then also getting ready for release into the community because the context would change so the risk might change. So you do it again and again. And then if something happened acutely, like say if a nurse came to me and said, I'm really worried about them, I'm really worried about the risk and for violence and that it's changing, then we need to figure out why. So what, 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 what were the warning signs? What was coming to your attention? What was making you worried? And usually the things that um, we really should narrow down on, and usually what it is, is that somebody's been engaging in behavior or making statements that have been intimidating or threatening. But you really have to get down to what was the behavior, what was the statement? And then therefore, what, was, what, what, what were they saying or doing that was making you feel intimidated or worried or making people feel intimidated or worried? You know, I think the context is, you know, really can't be underemphasized because as someone who evaluates violence risk in prison, as well as violence risk upon parole, um, I think those risk factors are different. So for example, early on when I was doing risk assessments of violence in prison, and then relating that to violence upon parole, one of the things we would often do is we would say, okay, how violent has this person been in prison? Mm-hmm. And, and if this person has been violent in prison, they're obviously going to be violent when they get out or the chances are good. And we looked at some research and some data. And what we found is that that's true to some extent, because as you and I both know, when you're in prison, sometimes you engage in violence as a survival tool. Mm-hmm. There are very specific situational factors that result in somebody being violent. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it's self-protection. And what we found is that if a person is repeatedly violent in prison, you know, three times or more during their stay, then yes, there was a correlation. There was a relationship with that person being violent upon parole. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't just look at somebody who had one or two, you know, rule infractions that were violent in nature. That seemed to have actually little, if, if no, correlation mm-hmm. with how likely they were to be violent in the community. So I think it's so important and co- complicated because when we talk about violence risk and interviewing for violence risk, those risk factors can change Completely. depending upon the setting. Completely. And like, you know, as the context changes, the risk changes, and I think I think the biggest mistake maybe people make um, is they don't think they don't think that about that enough. And so you really always need to before someone's going to be released, you need to think about what they were like before they ever admitted or before they ever institutionalized. 
and therefore not just thinking about what's happened in the institutional setting, but what was going on before and what might happen again, not just in terms of the type of violence, but again, the things that might increase the risk. And the risk is always going to probably be increased upon release into the community during that, do the transition back into the community. And then also a lot of the risk factors that were present at that time might reemerge um, once we're back in the community, right? So I find that again and again, because I, I actually specialize in intimate partner homicide. And I find that again and again, people sort of forget about the past. And so somebody might commit very serious intimate partner violence towards a partner. And then they're in an institution for so many years correctional institution and then they're released and everyone sort of might forget about the fact that they almost killed a partner before so no new partners ever warned right about what the risk might be or what could happen or say if they were in an institutional setting and it wasn't for intimate partners violence despite the history they were in for say something else they're never even treated for intimate partner violence it's never even addressed it's not even a consideration upon release and then somebody's killed so let's right. talk let's talk about intimate partner homicide and you're risk evaluation. So tell me again a scenario that you are typically called into to evaluate the risk of intimate partner homicide. So it was the focus of my, my master's and my dissertation in terms of research about cases that have happened in the past, but it doesn't happen so frequently um, in Canada. But what I learned though, and maybe this is relevant to the audience, when I, I reviewed sort of 13 to 17 cases of intimate partner homicide in British Columbia from 1997 in a very in-depth way. And we learned that the warning signs related to intimate partner violence were not coming to the attention of professionals. They were coming to the attention of family, friends, and community members. So the people that are going to know about the risk and know about the violence are the people closest to the victim or providing services that are not traditional in the way that we would expect. They weren't reaching out to victim services. They certainly weren't always reaching out to the police. Doctors, family doctors might know, definitely family and friends might know. And so there's only been one time probably um, sort of since working in these very traditional settings where I've actually worked on a case where I was concerned about intimate partner homicide. And it was a case, it was a workplace case. And so, and probably similar to maybe what many people who are listening might have experienced in some ways, but it was an individual who worked in a research context and she came to work one day and she informed her manager that she'd just broken up with her partner. And so that in itself wasn't concerning, but she also disclosed for the first time, she'd never shared this with anybody, that her partner had been physically violent towards her and sexually violent towards her and had made some vaguely threatening statements. Like if you go to the police, this isn't going to end well. And so she told the manager this and she was worried that he might come to the workplace and he started to call her and email her at work, even though she said she didn't want contact with him. And the more she told her manager, the more worried they became. And so eventually they reached out to us because right now we just do violence risk assessments for any context, whether it's correctional or forensic hospitals, workplaces, higher education, whatever it is. So they reached out to us and then we did a violence risk assessment and, and the first person we met with was her. So the victim, and when we met with a victim, very quickly it became clear that we had reason to be concerned about lethal intimate partner violence within the coming hours to days. And different from any context that worked in the past, she was in the community, he's in the community, there's very few service providers involved. And so how do we get everybody 
acting as quickly as possible and taking this as seriously as possible. So in terms of sort of why we were worried about this case is her partner had a history of, say, physical violence for seven years. We started off by sort of slapping her and then punching her. And then he specialized in strangulation. So chokeholds. He was trained in jiu-jitsu. So he specialized in chokeholds, which is a really important factor for lethality. And then he engaged in sexual violence towards her several times a month for years. And now they're separating, which again is a very important factor for lethality. And he's shown a capacity um, for very serious to lethal violence and is making threats to engage in it. So at that point in time, we did everything we could. We informed the workplace of what our concerns were. They put a security bulletin out to all the coworkers. They put the, the workplace on lockdown. And he did try to attend the workplace, but he couldn't get in. And then he broke into her car. And they, and they called the police. And so now the police are involved. And there's three police departments involved. There's one police department involved from where she was living with him previously, one now from where her workplace is, and one in her vacation home as well. Because not only did he try to um, sort of break into the workplace, but he ended up trying to, well, assault her at her vacation home. She and her family went to their vacation home, and he was, he was standing on the balcony waiting for them. And then they called the police there. So there's all these police departments involved. The Ministry of Children and Families is involved as well because there's a three-year-old child. And then in addition to that, in addition to that, she's already contacted a lawyer for the purpose of separation, right? And then there's victim services is involved too. So everybody's involved. And we're concerned about intimate partner violence that could be lethal. And she didn't want to go to a shelter. So she didn't want to take the restrictive action that we thought would be needed, even though she also was worried that he could kill her. And so everybody put all the plans in place in light of what she wanted to have happen and how she wanted to manage it. And we left, we left the province. We went to, I live in British Columbia. We went to Alberta to actually a domestic violence homicide conference. And when we came home, we crossed the border and the Amber Alert went off. And the Amber Alert is when there's been a child abducted. And one of her primary concerns is that not only would he kill her, but he would he would kidnap her child. And we were also very concerned about this as a form of, say, retaliation for what she's done in terms of leaving him. And we thought, oh my God, I hope this is not our case. And it was, it was our case. And so what had happened is when we had left, the only person we hadn't been able to speak to was the lawyer who had been involved in the case and they just hadn't returned our call. And they had advised her to go back to the family home and because they thought it would be better for custody access down the line. So she did go home on her own with her son to this family home and he found out and he broke in and luckily she was on the phone with her partner, or sorry, her, her, her brother at the time. And, um, and he started to strangle her and she screamed and yelled into the phone. And then, and then luckily the brother called the police and then, what he was doing is he would strangle her to the point of unconsciousness and then she would resume consciousness and then he'd strangle her again and then she'd resume consciousness. And eventually she, he, he got her in her, his car, he drove her to his home and she resumed consciousness when, when he, he was actually going into his, his um, garage and getting a shovel and putting it into the back of the car. And so now she started to fight and scream for her life and the neighbor heard and the neighbor called the police and luckily the police um, came and, 
he, I guess, left before they got there and didn't think it was worth bringing her and he just left with the child. So, let's let's take a quick break. I, I hate to leave everybody on the like hanging on a chest, but <laughs> this is a, a very very interesting story. But let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll finish up the story, and then I want to talk about just interviewing in, in in particular and specifically, and especially talking about some of the ways you prepare for an interview, who should be involved in an interview, um, et cetera, et cetera. So you are listening to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, your co-host for the for today, and our guest is Dr. Kelly Watt. Our topic is interviewing for violence risk assessment. We'll be right back on Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older. Until now, Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to Third of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Dr. Kelly White, and we are talking about interviewing and evaluating for violence risk. And right before the break, Kelly was telling us a really alarming story about a case she was involved in in which a, a partner was engaging in potentially lethal behaviors towards his his partner. And so I wanted to ask you a couple of things I thought about during the break, Kelly. One is, did you, in fact, talk to the person or the alleged perpetrator? And also, what was the most useful information that you got from interviewing the victim? So let's start with just, did you interview this person, the person who was accused of engaging in all these behaviors? And if not, when should you? Perfect. So in this case, um, we did not interview the person of interest because he um, sort of was not the workplaces that he didn't work for them. They could, this was a workplace violence risk assessment. So the setting in which you conduct the risk assessment will really sort of guide how you actually go about it, but it doesn't mean that you still don't need to do it. So for us, it's always a limitation if you can't talk to the person of interest. In this case, we couldn't talk to him, but we still needed to do the violence risk assessment. So we spoke with her and her manager and also um, other sort of providers who were involved in the case. So police and victim services specifically. And they shared information with us in that context. And so by bringing all that information together, we had no reason to doubt what she shared with us. 
if this makes sense. And what was the most critical and important piece of information that you got from her in the interview? Whenever you're doing an interview for risk assessment, you're gathering information, right? That's part of what you're trying to do. And sometimes that's people's primary focus is what information you're collecting. But the most important thing I think that happens in an interview related to violence risk is that you're doing an intervention. So in this case for her, I gathered information about the top, you know, 20 risk factors for intimate partner violence. And we shared that back. But the, I think what happened in the interview that was so key for safety planning is that she gathered, she gave me a bunch of information and then I showed her, and these are all risk factors for future violence. So she knows that this is the information she's given me. She just doesn't know that these are risk factors for future violence. And then together we talked about what are we actually worried about happening in the future in terms of scenarios for the future. And we both agreed that we were concerned about lethal violence and potential abduction. What are those risk factors? Because many people who are going to be listening are going to go, well, I mean, the guy's obviously hit her. He's done A, B, and C. I mean, there's clearly some behaviors that are of concern. So what are these risk factors you're talking about? Okay. So risk factors are things that are causally related to violence risk. And in general, you really need to think about the type of violence. But for intimate partner violence, some of the, like the most important risk factors would be whether the person has a history of intimate partner violence and also whether a separation has occurred or is likely to occur and whether the person is ever engaged in stalking. When those things, those three things come together, a history of intimate partner violence, an upcoming or recent separation, and also that the person's now engaging in stalking. And that's, those key elements are, are very key related to risk for lethal intimate partner violence. But otherwise, it's the same risk factors of, of just general intimate partner violence related to substance use, uh, mental health problems, personality disorder, employment problems, relationship problems. And you mentioned, you mentioned the choking behavior because there is such research to support. Yeah. So what a critical piece of information that is and how when somebody is willing to choke a partner to the point of unconsciousness, they're basically, I think, saying, I'm willing to do anything. I mean, I'm willing to kill you. Yeah. So it's sort of, I think that strangulation or is, I think it's getting much better attention over the last, say, five to 10 years, but it's one, one of the risk factors that as a method of violence has been maybe minimized or missed because often you don't see the damage and then sometimes the bruising or the implications of it don't show until hours or days later. And so they don't come to professionals sort of attention or professionals might say, well, it wasn't that bad as compared to other types of damage that you can do to injure someone. But for definitely it's, it's a method um, that at least recklessly could lead to like that. You could kill somebody in 30 to 60 seconds, even recklessly by um, through strangulation. Um, and then intentionally, especially if you know what you're doing, it could be highly lethal. So when you're thinking about sort of whether or not someone's now at risk of lethal intimate partner violence is really, do they have a capacity for intimate partner violence, like lethal intimate partner violence? So have they done serious or lethal intimate partner violence before? Are they, are they thinking about engaging in lethal or serious intimate partner violence? Are they planning to? And then certainly are they destabilized in any way? So are they in crisis related to relationships, employment, finances? All those things coming together would be very important 
If someone's going to kill someone, they usually have to think about it or they have to destabilize them enough to be able to do this. It's a very serious act and even if someone has a history of other kinds of violence, they usually either have to be planning for it or preparing for it or destabilizing themselves enough to do it. So let's talk about interviewing the person of interest. So you were telling me about some of the information you got from the victim in, the, in your case and how useful that was. So let's say that I'm somebody that's been identified as a person of interest, somebody who has made threats in the workplace, maybe somebody who's beat up his or her spouse, you know, and there's been a significant concern of workplace, of workplace violence or domestic violence. And you have been asked to come in and interview me. Number one, how do you prepare for that interview? That's a fantastic question. So generally, and different people have different opinions about this, but we would we would be doing everything else first before we interview you. Um, so we would be requesting specific documents um, that would be relevant, and because it's tied to the risk factors, so we'd want to see if there's any, say, if it's a workplace one, any conduct problems, any disciplinary problems, any accommodations, um, any grievances you've made or other people have made against you. And then we'd be identifying the collateral. And so collateral means like all the other people that either were witnesses of incidents of violence in the past or threats or thoughts or victims of those things or, or irresponsible, say, for providing services or, say, managing the situation if it's a workplace context. And, and then once you've had a chance to review the documents and once you've had a chance to interview all the relevant people, and then say review any relevant social media if that was important and then collect documents from any other service providers involved um, in the community then we would interview the person like you but because we want to be as prepared for possible as that interview as we can for a lot of different reasons so we need to know sort of what questions to ask you what we think you might have done, what we think, why we think you might have done it, and what you might do in the future, and how we're going to manage it before we even come into the interview with you. And then we need to try to think about how you think about all that too. So it's not, again, just about gathering information. You might also pose a risk of violence towards us, and we need to figure that out before we enter into the interview. And so it would be, some people talk about wanting to do interviews blindly, like not having sort of any, any other information influence them, but I, I just think that's actually, I think it's untrue that everyone's always biased going into an interview. How are you biased? And then yeah, also <laughs> I completely agree with you. And I have to say early on when I began doing violence risk assessments for inmates about to be released, I, a few times just in the, I guess, frenzy of trying to get stuff done. There were a couple of times when I went in and I didn't have a chance to review the records ahead of time. And I went in blindly and interviewed individuals and made, made sure that they were aware because I'm a big believer in transparency that I had access to their medical records and their, their C file, their criminal records. And uh, was just was very clear about that. And so we'd do this entire interview and then, you know, would get back and review these records and be like, what? You know, I mean, you know, what the person told me is completely different oftentimes <laughs> to what I'm reading. And so I have to, I would end up having to go back, you know, or choosing exactly. to go back. And then because, you know, there's the gathering information. And then at some point there's kind of a confrontation in terms of, you know, I mean, hopefully not an ugly confrontation, but there's, there needs to be some attempt to reconcile what that person is saying. If it's vastly discrepant from what you're reading and what other people are saying, and that person needs to have the opportunity to address that as well. And so I, I, you know, it's hard for me to imagine how that would be a, the best way to go is to go in there blindly. Yeah. And, and I think 
if I mean, we follow a certain structure for the interview too. So because we break it down into three phases, and I think you probably would too. So the first part is gathering information or developing rapport. Um, and then establishing what sort of your findings are with the person. So first hearing from them. And then we do have an entire phase in the interview about challenging minimization, challenging denial, challenging inconsistencies. You wouldn't be able to do that unless you'd actually already gathered other information or talked to other people. You wouldn't be able to do that at all. And then how could you even talk about the future, which would be the last phase, if you didn't actually have a good sense as to what the findings were, like what were the assumed facts based on everything you reviewed, based on everyone you talked to. And you couldn't even present to them what the complaints were if you didn't already know, right? So it's, it's, it actually sort of paralyzed you from being able to actually do a very good risk assessment interview if you didn't review documents or you didn't actually talk to other people first. I, I completely agree. I, I want you to talk a little bit about the challenging part of the interview because I think that really is a really critical piece of these interviews because I think the gathering information there's lots of different reasons for that in addition to just gathering that person's perspective but also like you said establishing rapport, taking things slowly um, giving that person a chance to tell his side of the story or her side of the story so tell me how you generally approach the challenging part of the interview Gently. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> so, we're challenging. I think we think we're attacking people, but um, we do this. We do this gently. And I would say this was the hardest part for me to learn how to do for sure. And so here it would be first, if you didn't do the first part of establishing for and gathering their side of the story, it's very hard to do this well and to still maintain a relationship with the person. So if you've done a good job of the first part of it, in terms of letting someone feel heard, listening to their side of the story, developing rapport, um, even having some compassion for them related to some of their experiences. When we get to this section, generally how we would start it off is by presenting to them um, sort of what, the, what we think the violence has been. So if there was violent acts or threats or violent thoughts or intimidating statements or behavior, we just present this to them. So on this date at this time, this is what people are saying happened. Sometimes we can't even say who said it because of concern about risk of violence. But did you do this? And we present each to them. And so, or what do you, what do you think about this? And they really need to tell us whether it happened or not, or if they remembered it happened or not. And if it did happen, what was it? What's their explanation of this? And so, we, and then really trying to get into sort of what was their motivation for this? What's their level of insight? How much are they minimizing? Everyone's going to minimize bad things they've done. I can't, if you just think about anything bad you've ever done, you're always going to minimize it to some degree, but how much are they, how much are they minimizing this? And then sort of how much insight do they have into this even? So not sort of so much are they lying or not, but are they minimizing? Are they denying? Do they have insight into this? What are their motivations? Do they feel justified in having done this? But and then presenting the allegations to them so they know sort of what is the concern that's been raised so they have a right to hear that and then they have a right to respond to that. How often, Kelly, do, does somebody just flat out lie to you? Because in my experience, I don't find many people lie to me about the actual incident offense or what they're, what they're being interviewed for. It's almost more what I hear a lot of times is either the kind of minimization and rationalization. Mm -hmm. um, yet part of this happened or yes, it happened, but 
or there's, uh, you know, a good explanation for it. Is that your experience as well? Definitely. It's actually less that people are lying so much more that it's minimization, justification, right? Or denial of an attitude to support it. I have had some cases though, where I believed that somebody was lying and then finally, and then it was going through each incident and just saying, no, it wasn't me. No, it wasn't me. No, it wasn't me. And they had made anonymous text messages and anonymous sort of threats. So it would, the person that she knew that it would be hard for us to know that this was her for sure, unless the police did an investigation to link it to her accounts. And there were multiple anonymous accounts. But finally, there was a piece of, so it was actually important for me to catch her <laughs> in some way in this, if this makes sense, because it was just no, 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 it couldn't have been me. It wasn't me. Then who was this? So what's her explanation of this? Who could have been doing this um, and representing themselves as her, know all this personal information about her. But finally, there was one message in which she referenced something just the day before that only she could have known. And she didn't know we knew about um, sort of what she'd made, a request she'd made to the university in this case. Um, so she said it wasn't her. And then we confronted her and showed her an email that she'd sent that would have proved that this only she could have known this. Um, and then she admitted to it and then all her other denials just unraveled, right? But otherwise, there's been just strange situations where people might be saying no in the last sort of year I've had this, it didn't happen. And in two of those, case, those cases, it actually was just some strange situations where they actually appeared to be impaired in their memory. One was so seriously intoxicated that when he became so seriously intoxicated, he did things that were quite serious and quite a departure from his behavior otherwise that he actually may not have full memory of this and the other woman had very serious uh, mental health problems and she also would go into fits of rage and see sort of red and say things that she it's not that she said she couldn't have said it or that she denied saying it she couldn't remember saying it and then when she when she was confronted with the message that was clearly from her she just fell apart, not in the sense of being caught, but in the sense of being devastated that she'd done that. That's interesting. And I, and I would agree. I, there have been a couple of cases. It, it typically was, was, was when substance abuse was involved, mm -hmm. where that does seem to have been the case with a person clearly. And oftentimes, it, at least as I'm thinking about it, it was almost a combination of substance abuse and a severe mental illness that were kind of interacting yeah. with each other, where the person genuinely did not seem to completely remember all the things that they'd done. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about I guess our own reactions to doing this work a little bit. These are questions I get all the time and I'm really curious, Kelly, as to how you feel about doing this work and some of the challenges and, and those kind of things. And then of course, let's talk about communicating about risk, um, restoring people after you've taken them to the challenging part of the interview and how you use all this information to plan for victim safety. You are listening. To a threat of evidence. Um, I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Dr. Kelly Watt. The show is, again, Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud, and we'll be right back. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. 
We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Third of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Dr. Kelly Watt. And our topic for today is interviewing for violence risk. And Kelly, it's not often that I actually talk to other people who do some of the same things that I do. And so I'm interested in getting your experience about internally, what is this like for you to do these violence risk assessments? I mean, do you ever get scared? I do. I do. I do get scared sometimes. I think I more often always get anxious about doing, doing a good job for everybody because the stakes are so high. I just want to make sure I'm, I'm doing the best job possible for everybody while I'm doing the interview because you can't really redo it. This, once it's done, it's done. And if it's an intervention, you're also doing an intervention. So I'm always a bit anxious. And I think I would be worried if I wasn't. Hmm. Um, if, that, if that, I don't know if you have the same feeling about that. I'm always, and it's a new person because every time you're doing an interview, you're establishing a relationship just like you did today, right? So we're establishing a relationship and you're not really sure exactly how it's going to go. So there should be some anxiety there, I think. Absolutely. And I think I personally love that part of it. The fact that each person is different and there is a need to and a desire to establish rapport, as you said, and see that person as a person and all of this complexity. But it does make it challenging then to kind of go through that assessment sometimes. And then I think in terms of being scared, there's there's probably two times where... There's one, I don't know, there's about three times. And it was early on where I was more fearful. Because um, the more I understood about violence, the more I felt I could prevent it. And I also moved out of traditional settings. Maybe I should say that too, right? So I'm out of these settings where you might, should be more acutely fearful. But there was one time where I was actually interviewing somebody in the context of a diagnostic assessment. So for, for neuropsychology. So I was not doing violence risk assessments. And I think this is sort of why this even happened because I wasn't, nobody was informing me about anyone's history of violence. Nobody was paying attention to it. I was doing something for a different purpose. Right. And I was interviewing this person and he had a serious brain injury and to his, to his frontal lobe. So that can really impair people's judgment as you know, and their sort of ability to manage their behavior, to respond in a not like it, they may respond quite impulsively. So I knew that about him just related to the assessment. But I was doing the interview with him and I think I was just asking him questions and they were information questions. So I'd ask a question, say about history and he'd need to know the answer to this. And he was, he was getting angry. And so this is sort of when we talked about earlier, needing to pay attention to these nonverbal and verbal indicators because it's not necessarily what the person says to you. It's sort of how they're saying it or how they're behaving that is going to alert you to risk. And so he was starting to get tense. He was, he was tensing his, his fists. His answers were getting more curt. He was glaring at me. And we were just sitting in this tiny desk. Like he could just reach out and touch me. Right? It was tiny in this room at the end of the hallway. And, and I just sort of, I had to stop. And I just thought, I, I had to I had to move from the content of the situation to the process. So it's that shift mm-hmm. to what is going on here. And so I just said, "Hey, you just look like you're feeling upset. Is, is something going on?" And he said, "Yeah, it's the nature of these questions. Like, the, well, he probably didn't say the nature. These questions they're 
they're discriminatory. And he was, he was an individual as Aboriginal First Nations. And I could actually see his point in terms of some of the historical questions. And so I validated him. And I said, I can actually see your point here. And I can see this as making you upset. And I can understand why this would be upsetting, right? And so I said, are you happy to proceed or not? And he said, well, I don't know. And I said, what, what? well, before I even said that, I said, what is this making you feel like doing? He says, I feel like I want to punch you. And I said, okay. And I'm young. So I yeah. said, well, do you still want to proceed? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I do. <laughs> and so I said, do you think you still proceed? I said, he's like, well, I don't know. And I said, well, if you feel like you can't stop yourself from hitting me, um, like, just let me know if you can't, you feel like you can't stop yourself from hitting me and then we'll stop. So I did one more question. And he clearly was still very angry. And I just said, you know what? I think we need to stop. And we stopped the interview. We And I said, let's stand up. Let's walk down the hallway. And I'll bring it just back to the unit. We don't need to do this now. And so that's what we did. But it's at that point that I realized I had, I had no panic alarm. There was no one else in the hallway. It was a very long hallway. And my supervisor was away that day. Like nobody maybe even really knew sort of where I was and who I was with. And when I dropped him off at the unit, I think it was, I just let them know that he was getting agitated. And, and it was either that day or the next week where I learned that he was the most violent patient they've ever had on their unit. He was off, he was a repeat sort of patient and had a serious history of very sort of quick to quick to become violent and very serious violence. So I thought that would be actually really important information to have shared with me prior to engaging in this diagnostic assessment. But that's also part of risk communication, which is what we'll get to next. But I have had situations where that, but not many, where in the in the actual set in the actual interview, you're concerned about their risk to you, right? And I've had another situation where someone was actually, and this was in a forensic hospital, was actually engaging in masturbation under the table, and I didn't know for sure, but I thought that might be happening. And again, I had to think about a creative way to stop the interview that would allow him to save face and for me to be safe and exit. And, and we did that as well. And, and then he also ended up engaging in very serious violence the very next day. So again, it's sort of paying attention to these, for him, all the warning sign was that he wasn't really paying attention at all, was answering the same answer to every question, which was yes. And his, his arm was kind of shaking and it was hidden under the table, right? So, and so what is going on here? And I didn't want to ask him what was yeah. going on related to that. But I also, I just drew attention to what the problem was, is that it seemed that he wasn't able to concentrate well. Right. And then he answered yes to a concentration question. And I said, okay, well, let's just close this up and leave the office here. But again, it drew my attention to sort of system problems related to not having sort of um, being in anyone's vision, not if he'd done anything, nobody could have responded quickly, all those things. So sometimes those things have to happen before you realize what some of the systems issues are related to keeping everybody safe at work. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, but, because but, things things can change very quickly. Sometimes they really yeah. can. Yeah, and 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 not maybe in the interview itself. Not I guess what I was I learned at the young age is just learning to again pay attention to your instincts, pay attention to your gut, pay attention to making sure you're ready for the interview in terms of people knowing that you're doing it, where you're doing it, what your worry could happen. But in those both of those situations, I'm I didn't know I didn't know, and that's probably what I would again, warn people against is making sure that people are communicating with each other about whether someone has a history of violent acts, threats, or thoughts, and whether there's any reason to be concerned about it right now. 
Absolutely. I mean, there are, you know, I'm sure in every setting, there are opportunities for that communication breakdown. I know in a prison setting, for example, there's oftentimes a disconnect between a person who's being transferred from the jail into a prison. And there oftentimes is there's no information that's, that's right. given to the prison about how this person's been, if they had any treatment, if they've been a behavior problem. And that obviously is really important information to know, you know, for staff, for custody officers, for other, you know, to be able to make sure everybody's safe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about communicating about risk. So tell me how you translate your findings or your information that you gather in the interview into communicating about risk. Okay, well, this is like, to me, this is actually one of the most important sort of areas that people probably don't talk about enough. So I'm, thank you so much for asking that question. Um, I think it's where if you, if we don't communicate well about risk for violence and how to manage it or plan for safety, then nothing's going to change. So we could do the best possible worksheet and even the best possible report. And unless it's shared with the people that need to know in a way that they need to know it, then no one's going to do anything different. And if violence risk depends on the context, if you don't change the context, then you're not going to change the risk. So the communication is so important, I've learned over time. Um, but generally what we do now, routinely, and this wasn't done in all the other settings I worked in, but generally when we do ones for workplaces, we always do feedback sessions. So we do feedback sessions for everyone who took part in the process. It could be as simple as letting people know what, that it's complete, whether there's any concerns about violence risk, and then what they need to know, which could just be that, that it's done. There could be nothing else they need to know. Or it could be much, um, much more comprehensive. So if we did a full feedback report, it would be all the findings of the assessment in terms of the risk factors, and then moving into opinions, whether or not violence occurred or not, why, they, why we think someone did this, that's the formulation, what we're worried they might do in the future in terms of scenarios, and therefore what needs to be done to manage it in terms of monitoring, treatment, supervision, and safety planning. So the feedback sessions are so key. And I think in the past, people weren't feeding back to collateral, certainly in terms of other um, sort of witnesses or supervisors or service providers, sometimes victims, and, and often not even the person of interest. So we would feedback to everybody if it was safe to do so, and in the way that, bounded by that need-to-know principle, because you're always communicating stuff that otherwise they might not have needed to know, but in the context of violence risk, now they do need to know. So do you ever get pushback when you're talking about safety planning? And what I'm thinking about, Kelly, and this has been, you know, many years ago when I really saw this, but sometimes early on when I was involved in a domestic violence situation that had spilled over to the workplace, I got a lot of, I guess, resistance on the part of companies sometimes. In other words, there was this kind of attitude of this is a personal problem. And this is a personal problem that should be dealt with outside of work. And we're just going to fire this person. And yeah. I know that there's been a lot of change in that area, legal changes, as well as I think mindset changes, because we all know that the, the boundaries between work and home are blurred and they are always going to be blurred. Yeah. But I'm just wondering when you give this kind of feedback, if you ever still run across that. I think I did in the one case we talked about earlier in, in one way, which is that they didn't. So the other way we feedback would be in written reports. So we always would want to give a full written report to the say employer or whatever setting I worked in. I'd want something on file. If, I, if there wasn't any documentation in writing on file or in a system, 
then it's not holding people accountable the same way, right? So then they can just, you do an oral report, a full oral report, and they might just hear what they want to hear or say they heard what they wanted to hear. So in that situation, I did a full oral report where I was saying the findings orally. And we always do that first. Maybe that's also part of the process to know because we can't wait till the, it's written. We need to communicate now what the oral report is in terms of the findings and opinions. But they didn't want a written report. And my worry was that they didn't want documentation about what the facts of the case were and which was so weird to me. It was either that because this wasn't their fault. Like he wasn't their employee, right? She was. So they didn't, they had no, they had no fault related to this happening. They certainly had a big role about what they could do to prevent it. So I also worried though, that they weren't maybe wanting to implement all the management strategies to prevent this from happening. It felt like a liability management strategy that maybe wasn't um, in their best interest anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it's shifted, but I do think it's definitely still there. And people are sometimes thinking too much about, say, the cost of, say, the assessment versus the cost of the violence if it occurred and they didn't prevent it and they knew about it. Right. One hundred percent agree. And I do think that's changing. I want to be an optimist. I am an optimist, but I do still run across that where it it does become two of those things. There's a a, a hesitancy about having things written down because what if we get sued at some point? Yes. We don't want this to be there. And yes, there's the whole issue of, well, how much is this assessment going to cost us? And it's like, you know, it's, it's going to cost you a certain amount of money, but you're right. When you balance that against what could potentially happen, it's a drop in the bucket. And you know, and you know what I, it's so interesting that you said that the one thing that I, that happened to me when I started to implement sort of violence risk assessments in civil psychiatry, they'd never been done before in a formal way. So psychiatrists say they're doing them, but they're not doing them in a formal way usually. And do you recommend recording interviews? Yes. So we, we would always recommend, especially with the person of interest. So um, recording the interview, and then we would always offer to have, for them to request a copy of it. So it's for our protection and their protection to make sure that we've got some sort of recording beyond our notes about what happened. And then just remembering, like you and I talked before, to make sure that the recording's on. (laughs) So I always always assume that something will happen in the recording. And so I'm always still writing all my notes too. So we usually have two people in the room, one person who's leading the interview, the other one's writing notes or observations, and then also a recording of it. And now with collateral, if it's primary victims and even all our collateral entries, we offer that for everybody now, just an audio recording so that there's some other documentation should something happen or should there be some disagreement about sort of what was said. Sure. I like that idea because I do think it it protects not only you as a professional, but it does show some respect to the person of interest, you know, that, that, Hey, you have a copy of this and you can also go back and listen to this. And you may, you may agree or disagree, but this is your own own copy. We respect you. And this is your information as well. That's right. And then it also allows us to not have them audio record it because what we don't want is them to audio record it and to change it. So we have the original and then we can share it with them, which helps to protect any even though we were trying to be supportive of the person interest, we also want to protect us too. So any potential, yeah, changes to the audio recording. <laughs> we are almost out of time, unfortunately, but I always like to ask this question of my guest, and that is, what is the most important thing that you think somebody listening to the show should remember? 
you know, when they're, when they're thinking about assessing violence risk? I guess in terms of the interviewing piece and the communication piece, it's just trying to make sure that either you are talking to people about violence, like get comfortable talking to people about violent acts and threats and thoughts, or referring them to somebody who's comfortable, and then get comfortable communicating to people about your concerns for the future in terms of warning, real warning signs, right? So I think that the people that are listening, whether or not this is what you do or not, you guys are the ones that are probably observing these very important warning signs. And then if you communicate them to people that can actually do something about it um, and assess it further, this is how we're going to prevent violence. The earlier we can detect these warning signs, the earlier we can communicate them about them to people, and the earlier we can actually get people help. Because generally that's what people often need is assistance, the better. And then it would prevent this from getting into something where punitive action is taken because we can get ahead of it. And so I think that would be the best important, the best thing to do. So try and identify these warning signs and communicate about them. So I think I hear you saying in a very, very interesting and enlightening way, but kind of almost like if you see something, say something. If you're worried about something, you notice a coworker, you notice a loved one who's behaving in a way that's of concerning to you, speak up sooner rather than later. Exactly. Exactly. And then, and just make sure then, that, and you don't have to know for sure what the truth is, but if you see something, say something, and then say it to whoever else can actually do some investigation of this. Well, I want to thank you again, Kelly, for coming on. I know you are super busy, as evidenced by our challenges when getting this interview scheduled, but it was certainly worth the wait, and I so much appreciate all of your insight and information. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Dr. Kelly Watt. Our topic for today is interviewing for violence risk, and the show is Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. See you next time.